on the back of your study notes today, um, you'll see there are a couple things we're going to talk about. We've got the life group questions listed there as well uh, for those of you in life groups. Um, also on the study notes, uh, we're going to do a couple things here today. Uh, today's a bit of a nerdy uh, one today. We're going to sort of give you an intro to two entire chapters. And so we're going to kind of consolidate a bunch of information and try to put it in a couple places that will help you in your reading. I want, to, I want to emphasize that at the very beginning here of Revelation 2 and 3. What we're doing today and what we're doing in this whole Revelation series, it, it doesn't work for you unless you're in the Word. I'm being intentional in my preaching more and more uh, to, to, to give you what you need as a supplement for your own study. And here's why. Because it's real easy to be spoon-fed. It's real easy to do that. And that doesn't help you. It doesn't help the body. It doesn't help your family. It doesn't help your kids. And that's rampant. Spoon-fed people who think they're following when they're fakes. I don't want to be a fake. And I know you don't either. So I, so I, want, I want our time on Sundays. I want our preaching. I want every, everything about our programming. I want it to scream, you've got to come along and grow in this process. Because it's too easy to, to sit in, in church and just like, tell me, just tell me everything. So, uh, so I'm sort of structuring as much as I can uh, Revelation and the way we, we preach and the way we do, uh, do our, our study of the Word in a way that fits with life groups. Because, because connection and intimacy and relationship with people happens in those smaller groups where you can do life together, where you can cultivate growth together. It's our second C, cultivate growth. Cultivate growth in relationship with one another horizontally and with God vertically. That's why we do study groups. So Bible content with your, your, your vertical learning in your relationship with God can happen each Sunday. While you're here in worship, it's happening right now. And so second hour study groups, we want to encourage you to do that because it's part of cultivating in your life a place where growth can happen, where the Holy Spirit can work on your life. So study groups and life groups are those places. And we want to sort of structure, we want to sort of structure what we do with our preaching and life groups to sort of tag team that. Uh, because we want you to move beyond just worship to do study groups and then life groups. So today what we're going to do is give you some tools for your own reading and study of chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation. We'll start there in just a couple minutes here in Revelation 2 and 3. Um, so uh, what we're going to do is sort of look, look at the big scope, the broad sort of picture of these two chapters. And we're going to focus in a little more and uh, tell you what happens in each one of these letters. We're going to use the, uh, the, the letter to the church at Ephesus, that first one, as an example of those specifics of the seven parts of each letter. So we're going to start in the structure part here and give you some of that structure from the broad picture. Because, because the basic gist of what's being communicated by the risen Christ is that there's sin in your life. That's what's being communicated in these two chapters of Revelation 2 and 3. And there's some, actually some encouragement along the way here. It's not just all bad news, but there is bad news. The bad news is repentance is a necessary component of becoming who God wants you to be. This isn't just like a one-time, uh, thank you, Jesus, I came down the aisle kind of thing. 
Repentance is a regular daily thing for the believer in Christ. Seeing where, where we need him to change us and fill us. And that's what, that's what this risen Christ we look at the last couple of weeks, this clear picture of this amazing, full weight of God's glory risen Christ who comes and walks among the churches, walks among the lampstands that we see in Revelation. I want him to walk into my life. I hope you do too. That's a scary process. But it's something that the growing believer in Christ accepts. Accepts. And doesn't push away. Because <laughs> it's easy to push it away. So let's look, first of all, at this structure here. We're going to go straight up Bible, because uh, that's how we roll. And see how Jesus walks through uh, the seven churches. Uh, so first of all, let's get interactive. Uh, in chapters 2 and 3, hopefully you've been, been reading through Revelation. I've been encouraging you to go through it once a week. Uh, let's get interactive here. In chapters 2 and 3, there are how many letters? Seven, Yes. One letter for each church. And as we mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago and last week, uh, based on the full six plus one days of creation, in other words, six of creating, one of resting, seven is the number that signifies completion, uh, perfection. It, it simple, sim- signifies that something is working as it's supposed to work. Uh, because on day seven, uh, God looked at all of he, what he had made and he said it was good. He said, it's done. It's finished. It's finished. Funny, Jesus said the same words in the cross. So the number seven is important in Scripture. And here in Revelation, the number seven comes up a lot. In chapter one, there were how many spirits around the throne? Yes, you can just say seven when I want you to, because that's going to be the answer for everything. Okay. So there are how many spirits around the throne? Yes. Uh, and how many stars and angels and lampstands in John's vision of the risen Christ? Yes, very good. And now these seven angels uh, that we just talked about are hearing a message from Christ himself that is a letter written to how many churches? Yes, very good. You guys are amazing. Okay. So these seven churches, these seven letters, were initially meant to be read aloud in a context like this, in worship. And it was meant to be carried around to all of the churches in Asia. Uh, It was also meant for us. We know that from the text itself, and we can point that out a few places, but uh, I want you to to realize that that it's clear that this letter was intended for all of the churches, not just those seven, all of the churches there. We know from history that there were three others at least that existed in that area in Asia at the time. And so clearly this was meant to to be delivered to all of the churches and read aloud to them in worship like this, which is why in Revelation 1, 3, it says, blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy. Blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. So, so it was written for us, intended to be read by us today. And in each of these letters, in every single one of these seven letters, seven times we see the phrase once in each letter, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit, capital S, says to the churches, plural. So it wasn't just written like to one church. It doesn't say what the spirit said, by the way. It says what the Spirit says, what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So it was intended even for us today. And there's another cool evidence of this we'll look at later on. So I'm going to show you the structural stuff here. Uh, We're going to play with uh, the whiteboard here uh, for just a minute and uh, show you some cool stuff about the structure that I want you to know here that, uh, that is important for all of these seven letters here. This that I'm about to show you 
is uh, what we call a chiastic structure. I've pointed this out a few times before. And uh, this first thing is an, I'm thinking it's coming. Is it coming? Mirroring on. Sorry, Tommy and crew. All right, there we go. Here we go. This, I need to come up. Okay. There we go. Is an X. Okay? In Greek, this X is called a chi. I've pointed this out a couple times in our Genesis series especially. This is a literary structure that happens all over Scripture. And it's something that's happening not just with, uh, with Revelation a couple different places. In fact, I'll show you how the whole book of Revelation has some really cool chiastic structure. Um, but, but for these seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, there's chiastic structure that goes along with these letters that I want to show you. Here's what chiastic means. It's just a Greek word that means like an X. Chi, uh, in fact, early Christianity would identify themselves by having a chi row, and that's how people would know, hey, that's where I go and worship, because they were uh, being persecuted. So this, this uh, chi right here is a symbol for Christ, and it became that early on, because in Greek, a chi is an X. And so a chiasmus is this structure, and it usually looks something like this when we see it in poetry and in, and in the Bible. We see it like something like this. This is a, a simplified version of it. Uh, you have uh, one line and then a second line and then a third line, but then it goes back to repeat something idea, uh, some idea like B, so B prime, and then A, same way, A prime, uh, sort of repeats the idea in A. And usually, usually what we see is that this right here is the main point. Or, or it's the contrast of everything else. It's something that you're supposed to, to see as the main gist of what's going on uh, in basic terms. Uh, there are lots of different kinds of chiasma. There are double parallels, triple parallels, contrasting. It, it's, it's a whole bunch of different kinds of things. But, but this, for us, is what it looks like. And it's a little different than what I just showed you. It's different like this. We see in the seven letters... The three letters in the middle are, are, are similar. And then we have the parallels here. I want to show you why this is uh, significant in terms, of, in terms of the letters themselves. Got to go hard copy, go old school here for a second here. Here we go. All right. Here's what we see for the seven letters. The first passage here, I'm just going to draw the passages straight across from it so you see what I'm saying here. The first passage, A, is 2, 1 to 7. That's the first letter. And then B, the next letter, is 2, 8 to 11. And then we see the, the middle three where the churches basically go from bad right here to worse right here. The worst one is C3. We'll see that in a little bit here in Sardis. So you've got the three in the middle, which is 2, 8, I'm sorry, 2, 12 to 17, 18 to 29, and then 3, 1 to 6. Those are the three C's there in the middle. If you're taking notes, we've also got 3, 7 to 13, and 3, 14 
to 22 here. These are all of the seven letters here. And there's something really cool I want to point out to you uh, in just a second here as it relates to the main idea of all of these seven letters. And this will help you in your reading. Uh, but there's something, something I want to show you here along the way. This one right here, these right here, and these right here all include the words in various forms. The word repent. And A, C1 to 3, and A prime, there at the beginning, in the middle, and in the end, all are churches where Jesus walks along and looks at them and says, this I have against you. I see this. This is the sin in the camp. This is what's going on. This is what I'm noticing about your lives that you need to be aware of and see. And I want to show you. I want to show you. So he walks among the churches, among the lampstands, and sees those things. Now here in B and B prime, those are parallel because there is no repent. Uh, they are commended for their faithfulness to the gospel. So those two are a little bit different here in, uh, in Revelation. So there's one place I want to show you especially in the middle of the three churches that shows how we know that this is a chiastic, an X-like kind of structure. And it happens in Revelation. Can you read that there? Yeah, in Revelation 2.23. Everybody turn there for just a second, Revelation 2.23. And as you're reading in your uh, seven letters, this will help you understand sort of, sort of what the, the point of all of these letters is. Because there's a bunch of things about these letters that, they're, that are in common. We'll look at in just a second. They all follow a similar pattern. Uh, but there's one thing in this whole section, in these two chapters, that is different than everything else, and it's this one verse. And it's right smack dab in the middle of all of this. 2.23. This is Jesus speaking. It says, all the churches will know that I am he. All of the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart. And I will give to each of you according to your works. It's why at the very beginning of each one of these letters, it says, the words of the Son of God... Who, who has a, eyes like a flame of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze, the word of him who has the sharp two-edged sword, the word of the first and the last who died and came to life. Each one of these picks a part of that risen Christ that we talked about last week, that vision of the risen Christ, and takes a piece of that and applies it to the specific church. And then he says, I know your works. I know your works. And, and those, those two little words there, I know, are really significant. Really significant. We'll come back to that toward the end of our time here this morning for just a second. Because of the contrast of what we think we know. So, uh, i put this in your study notes here. Uh, all of these letters, all of these seven letters, and we don't have time to, to go through all of them. We're going to soon enough. We'll go through all of them and point out all of these meanings and, and, and what it looks like. But I want you to, to get the overall feeling of it in structure. Uh, all of these letters deal generally, and this is in your study notes, all of these letters deal generally with the issue of witnessing for Christ in the midst of a pagan culture. I'll show you where we get that along the way here. Uh, it's, it's easy to read these letters and think, you know, <laughs> that they're, they're letting false teaching come in. And that's true, but that was part of why they lost their witness. It's easy to look at something in the sins of these churches and say, aha, sexual immorality. <laughs> yeah, that, that's not right. But that's why they didn't have a witness. All of these letters really deal 
with whether or not that church was an effective witness. So, so what we see in the beginning chapters of Revelation and the risen Christ is him coming to show us how it is that we need to get back to our first love so that our, our witness is effective. That's one, of the, that's one of the main things we have to hear in the early chapters of Revelation. So I included that in your study notes there. All right, let's move on. How do I turn marrying off here? Here we go. I want to show you how these seven letters come together and how there are parts of each one of these letters that you'll notice along the way as you're reading. We're going to use uh, the first letter to Ephesians as an example. We don't have time to read through all seven of them, but we'll use the first example in Ephesians here. This starts at the beginning of chapter 2, verse 1, to the church in Ephesus. And here are these seven parts in your study notes here that you, uh, you can see there. Number one says there's a command to write to an angel of a church. Uh, that's the beginning of each letter. And then it says Christ's self-description that's des- derived, it's taken from the description in chapter 1. We talked about that a second ago. Each, each part of that risen Christ vision, one part of that will be taken and applied to the church. Uh, number three, there's a commendation, an encouragement saying, hey, good job. A commendation to the church's good works. Number four, uh, there's some sort of accu- accusation because of a particular sin. Uh, five, there's an exhortation to, re- to repent and then a warning of judgment or an encouragement. Six, there's an exhortation to discern the truth of the message. And number seven, there's a promise in each one of these to those who conquer based on the fact that Jesus is the conqueror. So let's look at Ephesians here, uh, chapter 2. Verse 1, it says this, to the angel of the church in Ephesus. That's number one there, that first part, the command to write to the angel of the church. And then comes number two, Christ's self-description that comes from the vision in chapter 1. It says, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The seven golden lampstands, of course, are the churches. And whether or not there's light is whether or not there's the light of Christ in them. Not whether or not they've got a lamp that's lit. So here's number three. The commendation to the church's good works. Look at verse two. He says, I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil. But I've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently. It's an encouragement there. And bearing up for my name's sake. And you have not grown weary. But here's number four. The accusation because of some sort of sin. And this happens in every one of these letters. Number four. But I have this against you. That you have abandoned the love you had at first. Here comes number five. The exhortation to repent. With a warning of judgment or an encouragement. Number five. In verse five. Remember therefore from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And here's number six, the exhortation to discern the truth of the preceding message. This is the he who has an ear part. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then the promise to the conquerors, the last part of it, is this at the end, verse 7, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life 
which is in the paradise of God. I just wanted to share some of the structural stuff so you can see the, the big picture of what's going on. So I want to just sort of apply this by asking a question. What if Jesus, what if the risen Christ, not the Jesus that we create after our image, what if the risen Christ with the full weight and glory of his power and his majesty came and looked at your life? What if he walked among us and looked at this church What would he have to say in a letter to you? In a letter to us? About your witness? About your zeal for the gospel? What would that Jesus have to say to you and to me? Oh sure, he might say some things like, you've done well in this. You're faithful in this. I hope there's some of that encouragement. But along with that, The risen Christ, who is perfect and we are not, would clearly have some things to say like, this part needs work. You don't get this. This is the place you need to grow in. And if that that does not mark our Christian life on a regular basis, then we're worshiping Jesus made in our image. A bottom-up, created after my expectation of him kind of Jesus. And that's why revelation is so important for us to get straight. There's a truth about the church I think that's helpful for us. There is some truth about the church that we read in these chapters that apply to the way we think about church, the way we participate in the body. And and I think at first it's going to sound like, wow, that's the truth. Big deal, Scott. But we'll unpack it in a second here, and and I'll tell you what I mean. There has never been, and there never will be, this side of Jesus' return, a golden age of the church, and there is no perfect church. And when you turn the church itself into your Savior, and the one on whom your personal relationship with God depends, you've turned the church into your idol. And I want to tell you a little bit why we see this in these seven letters in Revelation, and then, and then I'll tell you why it's helpful for us to hear. Think about these letters. There were only two, only two of the entire seven letters who were not rebuked heavily for their sin. And when this letter was written, the age of the first apostles and disciples of Jesus hadn't even ended. In other words, these were letters written to churches that had the apostles in charge. These might have been churches that heard of John's teaching. These were letters written to the early church, the first century church, and only two of the seven were not rebuked. There are more unhealthy churches here than there are healthy churches. And this isn't just a phenomenon in Revelation. In Acts 6, one of the first problems of the church was that widows were being 
uh, neglected in the distribution. Every once in a while, we don't do that well either. In Acts 10, 11, and 15, there were problems with Gentiles and the issue of circumcision. Paul and Barnabas, Paul the greatest missionary who ever lived, Paul and Barnabas had a, a major conflict about how to do their mission, how to carry out the work of God. There's a truth about the church that maybe has never occurred to you before. And it's a truth about the church that's hard to reckon with because it muddies the water of our expectations. It makes things in the body of Christ complicated and messy, frankly. But it's something we need to understand about being part of God's family this side of eternity. And it's this. And it's something we see in the churches in Revelation. As simply as I can put it, it's this. For now, the sheep and the goats are in the same pen. I think that's a truth that's hard for us to get, to reckon with, to deal with. For now the wheat and the tares are in the same field. Saved and unsaved, believer, unbeliever, follower, fake, are in the same group that we call the church. So if I were to ask you the simple question, who is the church? How do you, how do you, you know who that is? Because I think we get caught up, caught up in what we call the church or what we expect from it. The problem is we think we know. That's why Jesus' words to these churches where he says, I know is a critical piece of our reading of Revelation. The problem is we think we know who's in and who's out. Why these people are in and these people are out. But according to the Bible, God alone knows who the church really is. Jesus tells us in John 10 that he knows his sheep. He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. In Matthew 25 where Jesus speaks at the end of the age when the Son of Man comes in glory... He says in verse 32, Matthew 25, 32, before him, in other words, before the Son of Man, will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. In other words, here's the hard truth we don't want to believe. Separation of righteous and unrighteous is not your job. It's not our job. Clearly someday down the road, when the risen Christ returns in glory, it is not our job. But even now, in your head and in your heart, it is not your job to separate who's in and who's out. It's like the parable of the weeds that Jesus tells in Matthew 13. Matthew 13, 24 to 30, if you're taking notes. This is where the master of the household, he sows good seed in the field. But then, but then in that good seed, weeds start growing. Weeds that look like wheat at first, but then when they grow, they clearly show themselves to be weeds. And when the servants of the master, that's us, when we see that, when the servants of the master saw this, they came and they said to the master, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds? 
the truth of the matter biblically is that sheep and goats are together until Jesus the great separator comes to take sheep home. And that makes our experience of one another this side of eternity difficult. Frustrating. It means we have to be people of grace, which is hard. It means we need to learn to trust those who may not be trustworthy, and that is scary. It means, it means that our expectations for it's certainly it's supposed to be different here don't always fit. Because everybody still struggles with sin in a way where if the risen Christ came and walked through your checkbook and your family life and the way you perform on your job, he'd have plenty to say. In Matthew 13, the servants asked, Master, did you not sow good seed in the field? How then does it have weeds? In response, the master said, an enemy has done this. So the servants said to him, listen to this, and think about how often this has been your own response to the presence of sin in other people, everyone else. Think about how often this has been your response to the presence of sin in Christians. Then do you want us to go and gather them? No. No was the answer. I, I hear myself in that question. And if you're anything like me, I bet you do too. I'm, I want to I gather them all together. Wheat and tares, followers and fakes. And I, I want to get rid of all the sin and all the ugliness and all the frustrating parts of life and the difficult parts of being a part of the body of Christ. And the hard truth, friends, is that in, in my self-righteousness... In other words, as a way to justify myself and my own life and my own behavior and my own goodness before God, I want to have a bonfire. But that's not how it works. We don't get that. That's not our job. We're not worthy to do that. We must, we must get that straight. There's only one worthy to open the scrolls. So, so when, we, when we call repentance, we're only calling it repentance out of our mouths as it comes from the risen Christ. He is the one who calls people to repentance. He is the one who walks through as risen Christ, capital R, capital C, looking at his churches. He is the one worthy to make judgments. It is the conviction of the Holy Spirit in the life of a believer and at the heart of a church's ministry that's going to change lives. No matter how much we, we dress it up or try to manipulate people or, or seek to purge our lives of others or their lives of sin, it's not going to work unless the Lord does it. And that's, that's a big part of the message of the risen Christ to the seven churches. And, and it's a message that is not directed to that, that other person over there whom I hold in quiet contempt. 
It's a message directed straight at us from the one capital O whose majesty and whose purity and whose holiness has a voice in our lives. You see, we short-circuit it if we do that ourselves. We short-circuit the work of God if we find a way to manipulate that process and to self-righteously gauge it and to make sure we know who's in and who's out. And we set up scales to ensure that we can weigh everyone ourselves included on those scales. I hope and I pray that your reading of Revelation and seeing the risen Christ walk through these churches and in our lives is something that, that, that elicits in you this thought of there's, there's grievous sin for which I need, I need to repent. Because repentance is the message. And, and it's not just to those people out there. It's not just to people we call goats or those we're sure are tares. <laughs> it's to each one of us so that His glory will be made known.